Welcome to Office Hours with John Gardner. The John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education strives to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is John Gardner, your host for what we've been calling Office Hours with John Gardner. Welcome to today's what will be a conversation, although I promise you I'm going to do much less of the talking than our guest. And it's a pleasure for me to uh, introduce our guest, a gentleman I have known for um, not quite two decades. Uh, He's been in his current role long time for this kind of role, 15 years, and I am so respectful that he has stayed the course that you're going to hear about. So it's a pleasure for me to introduce Jamie Marisotis, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Lumina Foundation for Education. Um, I'm not sure, and he will tell us whether he describes and they describe the foundation in this way, but I see them as a foundation in search of innovation, and that's the connection to this podcast series. And not only in higher education, but in other sectors of our society that influence higher education. And, you know, we're all in this together, red, blue, pink, purple, you know, whatever. We've all got that as a common goal. And um, um, I was reminiscing with Jamie that I had the misfortune to have him as a warm-up act once for me. He was giving a speech to a, a group of college presidents, and they were very unhappy to see him leave that room and very unhappy to see me come in and take his place. So I'm now recovered from that. Um, so let's take it away, Jamie. I, I, uh, I've introduced you in a very narrow uh, technical way, but uh, I want you to kind of give our listeners, if you would, please, the the essence of your story. Um, how did you get to lead an organization that is focused on innovation in higher education? And what have you know? How do you, you as an innovator, how do you do that? So take it away in any way you want. Enough. Thank you. Me. Thank you, John. Thank and. First of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here, to be with you. Um, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, you and I have been in the uh, the business of trying to transform our system of learning for a very long time, and uh, it's a real privilege to have the chance to do this. and And your story is a little apocryphal, John, because uh, in that in that talk that uh, that you and I both gave, I know that they were as excited to hear from you as they were from me. Uh, but it was it was a quite a great experience to to share the stage with you. I, you know, my my uh, my personal story is probably relevant here to sort of explain why I've um, been at Lumina Foundation for amazingly uh, fifteen years. You know, I'm a, a first generation uh, college uh, graduate. Uh, I came from an immigrant family. My mother was born in Greece. My father was actually born in the U.S., but he spoke Greek before he spoke English. So we grew up in a in a classic immigrant household. Neither of my parents uh, went to college. My dad was a high school dropout and uh, was actually in World War II. He was a POW. But in their minds, uh, they very much believed that education was the key to economic and, and social success. And they put all of their energies into making sure that I and my three brothers had a chance to go to college. And so, you know, I, I've told people uh, that 
um, your upbringing has a lot to do with what shapes your professional perspective. And, you know, my parents didn't really understand what college was in the concrete sense because they, they hadn't been, but they knew we were going. That's one thing they did know. And, um, and as a result, I think uh, the net impact for me and my brothers and now the next generation of people in our family, um, our children, uh, many of whom are adults now, is that higher education has ended poverty in the Marisota's family forever. And so it's a, it's a powerful story. I have, never, I, I have never had not only a guest on this podcast series, I've never heard anybody say that with that kind of confidence. That is amazing, Jamie. Well, I, I believe it. I believe say it. That again. Say, please say that again for our audience. I, I, I believe that higher education has ended poverty in our family forever. Um, I, I, I firmly believe that what we have learned by being people, and we have people who've got associate degrees, bachelor's degrees, advanced degrees. Uh, you know, we've got lawyers in the family. We've got people from uh, all different uh, walks of life. But everyone in this generation and the next generation have participated in post-high school learning and have benefited from it, not only economically, but socially. We're active in our communities. We're engaged. You know, we're, we're uh, focused on, on uh, leading a, a good life uh, as well as having good jobs and, and good careers. And, and I think that that is um, a core to my story, my professional story, because I uh, went to college studying political science, believing that I would end up in, in the public policy sphere, which I did. My first job out of uh, Bates College in Maine was as a policy researcher in the Washington office of the college board. And early in my career, so here I am, I'm, you know, I'm in my early 20s, I started doing research. I frankly found a job in education policy, mostly because I wanted to work in public policy, and that's the job I found in D.C. And I realized early in my first year on the job that I was actually doing research about people like me. It was about Pell Grant recipients, which I was. It was about uh, people who were sort of benefiting from the support that you get, academic, financial, social support in order to help you uh, succeed in college. And, you know, I, I realized that this was going to be my, my calling that I was actually going to try to help a lot more people benefit from what I understood. Even in my early twenties, I had benefited from, from the fact that my parents had the foresight to make sure that I and my brothers went to college. So, so that's sort of, you know, the Jamie story and what motivated me. And I ended up uh, you know, working for the college board and I did consulting and in a very strange turn of events, I ended up as the executive director of a bipartisan federal commission in the early 1990s. I was appointed by the president and the congressional leadership. Uh, that commission is best known for being the genesis or not the genesis, but I would say the the first entity that gave a voice to this idea of direct student loans, uh, sort of different student loan model. Um, did some other things that became public policy um, in, in the subsequent decade. Um, and then I founded the Institute for Higher Education Policy in 1993, co-founded it uh, with Colleen O'Brien. And, and uh, that organization, by the way, is now approaching its 30th birthday, um, doing very well without me, um, maybe even better without me than, than it did with me. I think we and, call this sustainability, um, right? Sustainability? Exactly. Sustainability, very important. But you know, that organization is a, a premier research and analytical organization uh, that is 
focused on student access and success. And so, you know, Lumina, as you pointed out, was started as an organization that was highly focused on this idea of innovating in higher education, but with a particular lens. And the lens that they had in 2000, I came in 2008, the lens they had in 2000 when it was created was that uh, Lumina should focus on improving college access and success. And when and, and it did a terrific job uh, before I came here. When I came, the sort of inflection point was this idea that uh, private foundations, I think, often see themselves as um, do-good operations. In other words, there's a, you know, sort of um, a phrase that some people use in philanthropy, which is, you know, some sometimes we are seen as cash registers with a conscience. And, um, and I think that, that um, my view of Lumina not an, was a, that, not an ATM, but a cash not, register. Exactly. A cash register. Let, you know, that's, and so, so my view of Lumina was Lumina was a good organization and could become a great organization if it saw itself as a leadership organization. And the best way to articulate this, and I actually said this in my job interview in 2007 when, when I, in the final interview for the job, is that we should try to uh, be a catalyst for the nation to increase post-secondary education uh, towards a specific national goal, which in 2008, we decided was 60% of Americans should have a degree certificate or other credential by 2025. And so... Um, so that's that's sort of the the origin story of both me of Lumina, and also where in my tenure over the last fifteen years, what has really animated our work, which is this idea that we've got to innovate, constantly innovate around this idea of a goal. Uh, not that Lumina can help make the goal happen on its own, of course not, uh, but as a catalyzing organization to not just make grants, but also to be a leadership organization to convene. Uh, to uh, focus on public policy and to bring other investors to the table. Uh, to me, that is what a leadership organization really is. And that's where I think our uh, model of innovation at Lumina has really been best articulated. Well, um, I, I believe you listeners believe him. Um, this is what I'm seeing of his organization. Um, and tell us about right now what you feel best about in your work. Uh, that's a difficult choice. You've done a lot of things, but you as a person and the, the innovator in you, what have you done that you felt especially is, I guess the term would be self-actualizing. You, you've, you've really um, done something that you, you're really right with. I'd say there's two things, one sort of conceptual and then maybe one uh, specific. The, the conceptual is, um, you know, I think my my philanthropic epitaph has already been written, John. I'm the goal guy. I'm, I'm the people I'm the person that people are going to remember was uh, behind this idea that uh, you should focus a big national foundation around a, a single goal. Um you see this happen in the corporate world and in, in the private sector. You occasionally have seen this in some uh, big national nonprofits, but you, you rarely see it in philanthropy. And, and so I think that that goal, that North star is something that I'm, I'm really proud of that I think is, is really important. And, you know, a good example of that is that 45 States have now set goals that are connected to what we do. Some of them are not 60% goals. They are, they're articulated in a different way, but they, they are ambitious. They are focused on 
reducing equity gaps. You know, they meet all the criteria of what we believe is important. And that goal setting has, in turn, created a lot of change where in 2008, when we started, 38% of Americans had a degree, certificate, or other credential. Today, 52% do. So 12 million more Americans than when we started. And so so that's one thing that I think has been, (laughs) to use your term, self-actualizing. The other is um, more specifically that I think that we have done a good job at Lumina of being nimble and being responsive to the changing context within which this work is operating. And the specific example of that right now is that, so in 2019, I was actually on sabbatical from my job at Lumina. I wrote a book that came out in 2020 called Human Work in the Age of Smart How long were you on sabbatical? Six months. Um, Six. And, um, and I came back from the sabbatical and said, we need to write a new strategic plan. We, we had new strategic plans every four years, but this is the last one. This is the closing argument on the 2025 goal. And um, sat down with the board and the senior staff and ultimately the rest of the organization to sort of map out what the work was. So we did this work, John, in um, beginning in late 2019, and I actually wrote a first draft of the new strategic plan right before COVID hit um, in early 2020. And that new strategic plan was highly focused on this idea that what the country was needing most from Lumina as an innovative force, and we had done all kinds of things over the last uh, 15 years, was to focus on this idea that community colleges and particularly uh, the issue of shorter term credentials and what adults need to get onto the pathway of learning needed to be a major focus of our work. So we focus uh, primarily on adult learners over the age of 25 in this new plan. And we zeroed in specifically around community colleges and shorter term credentials. Then of course, COVID hits and you realize, well, that's exactly what we need. It is that you know we needed to make sure that people were focused on building their skill set at a time when the demand for talent is growing very rapidly. But we we saw in with a great exclamation point the differences between the haves and have nots in COVID in terms of you know who was being impacted, the frontline workers, the the essential workers, they were people of color, they were low income populations, they were people who had not been well served by the system. And many of them had not gotten an opportunity to get education after high school. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that we've done a lot in that space in the last few years. Now, it harkens back to an earlier time at Lumina when Lumina was trying to build capacity around uh, community colleges and increasing student success through things like Achieving the Dream, a very well-known yes. um, organization now that is, is really thriving, um, continues to thrive. But this was in a new way. It was in a new way that was focused more on this idea that we need to be thinking about, um, you know, the alignment of credentials with employers, and we need to focus not only on student success but also on increasing participation. Something that I think had been lost in some of the national rhetoric. You know, I I had spent the last uh, few years talking to people who had said, "Well, you know, Jamie, we don't have an access problem anymore in higher education. We have a success problem," and I'd say, "No, no, no. We we have both. Uh, that attainment." is a combination of increasing participation, particularly when it comes to the equity gaps by race, and ensuring that we 
increase the completion, the success rates for students who get into the system. And so, you know, it was important to, to us and to our work that we try to add value in that space, particularly on the community college side. And that's a, a bulk of the work that we're doing now. And you know what? In um, a year or two, we'll probably start doing some new work that uh, reflects a new pivot based on what we're seeing in this, whatever we're going to call it, post-COVID environment going forward. And and what so, do we need now? It's, it's that it nimbleness. It's really important. So It isn't post-COVID. Whatever it is, right? Yeah. We're we're still in the middle of the pandemic. We all know that, but 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 we're dealing with a world in which the world is behaving as if there is no pandemic. And so, how, how do we deal with that? Um, so it's again um, being flexible enough to say we've got a north star, we've got goals, we're going to be very specific about what we're trying to achieve, but we need flexibility. We need to be innovative within the model of a sort of tightly focused goal structure is really important. I would like to create a, um, a hypothetical scenario here, and I hope you won't find this pre- uh, presumptuous, but you've had 15 years and you've been at a certain point in, in your life in terms of your age and your larger uh, context. Let's say we give you another 15 years and um, you could do anything you wanted in this job or anything else to uh, further your contributions to uh, American society. And because we're an example for the rest of the world, what if you were to really dream and talk with the people you'd want to talk to to help formulate that, what would you see yourself doing? Well, first of all, God forbid that I'm here another 15 years. I think it would be bad for the institutions. So let me be clear. I, I, I believe that... Now, wait a minute. That's another whole. Maybe, let's go there. Why would that be bad for the institutions? Oh, John, you know, these jobs, uh, you know, whether you're um, leading a foundation or you're a college president or you're leading a nonprofit organization, these are stewardship jobs. These are stewardship responsibilities. And and my job is to take the baton from my predecessor who did a terrific job do as good as I possibly can with this entity and then hand it off to people who come after me who will do even better than I did. I, I really believe that that is the sort of uh, a fundamental tenet of what leadership is all about. And one of those tenets is don't stay too long. Don't make the job about you, um, you know, make it about, about the work. And so, look, I've got a lot of energy and, and um, interest in the work for the next several years. I'm very focused. I've, I have no intention of going anywhere anytime soon, but my point simply is that um it's really important to constantly make sure that you are focused on using, you know, particularly when it comes to a foundation like Lumina, we've got more than a billion dollars in assets. You know, we have this great fortune, uh, literally fortune, but also good fortune to have resources. And therefore we have a responsibility to use those resources wisely. So, you know, what, what, uh, what I have said in, in the last couple of years goes back to what I said in that, interview that I did with the board in 2007. And what I said to them then was, what I think the system of higher education needs today is um, to produce a lot more graduates who are going to power our economy and strengthen our democracy at a time when we really need that. So this was the world, you know, going into the 2008-2010 recession, this was the world that I saw Let's talk about the economic and the social value of higher education. Let's focus on increasing attainment as a key element of that. I think all of that is still true today. So I don't think any of that has changed. 
but the context has changed. And part of what's changed is not only what we've experienced during COVID, but I think what we've experienced in the last, I would say, five or six years, which is that a growing, broader awakening, broader understanding of what I would call the existential threats to human existence. You know, we've seen with the murder of George Floyd and, and, and what we've seen with, with other cases like George Floyd, how much racial injustice and inequity really is an existential threat to human prosperity and, and success. And that we've got to confront racial injustice and inequity in ways that are inclusive. We've, we, we've got to make sure that this is a, an, a conversation and a set of actions that are, that are not only about making sure that we lift up people of color, but that we help white Americans understand why that not only matters to people of color, it matters to all of us, that it's about our shared well-being. Um, you know, another existential threat I'm worried about is that, that takes a lot of courage to say that you want to help white Americans. I mean, in, in the woke academy, yeah. there's some members of our community who don't want to hear that. They think we're already running the show and doing very well. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really important that, you know, I believe in shared well-being and shared outcomes. And I believe we have a responsibility to lift up those who we have left behind, who who history clearly shows have been systematically discriminated against for, for centuries. But at the same time, we need to make sure that this is not a zero-sum game, right? That this, is, this does not end up being a case of where um, uh, we simply say that we need to take from some and give to others. I really believe that we have an opportunity here to focus on shared well-being when we talk about racial inequity and injustice. So that's one existential threat that I think I want to commit my energy to in a, in a very serious way. And I, and I think the board and the staff of Lumina Foundation are unanimous in that view that a racial equity and justice will be part of the long-term DNA of Lumina Foundation well past the 2025 goal um, and, and, and the work that we're doing. But, you know, there's these other existential threats. Climate change is clearly one of them. And I think we've come to understand that uh, more clearly in the last few years, that this is not um, about saving the whales and about dealing with these sort of long-term issues. This is near-term existential questions um, you know, all of the things that we've seen, you know, you can argue that the pandemic is a part of, of climate risk. You can argue that, you know, all the things that we've seen with uh, the sort of uh, um, unusual uh, weather issues with fires and hurricanes and things like that, all of these things, these, these near-term risks that we're seeing, the very high temperatures in the summer of 2020, you know, all of these things, I think, are real, are real um uh, present day risks that we've got to focus on. And, you know, just to add one more to the, to the mix of, you know, what, what, what am I uh, really focused on? What I think is important for higher education, it's democracy. It's about um, combating the threat of authoritarianism. And, you know, the world values Institute says that 70% of the people in the world today live in countries where they where democracy is declining and authoritarianism is rising. And um, in that context, I think it's very important for us to understand where higher education plays a vital role in building and rebuilding democratic systems. Democracy is about freedom of expression, freedom of ideas. It's about recognizing and understanding that difference adds value. 
Um, it's about making sure that we don't let the authoritarians use fear, fear of change, fear of the other as ways to gain and consolidate power, but to use the knowledge that you gain through higher education to appreciate uh, you know, the value of other humans to want to contribute um, in, a, in a sort of virtuous cycle of others' well-being, not just your own well-being. And so you know, I, I think that's a, another important thing that we've got to focus on. And, and I'm, I'm committing myself to doing that work uh, for the long term, either at Lumina or, or elsewhere. Um, you know, eventually I'll do something else. I don't know when, but eventually I'll do something else. And, and I'm committed to that work. I'm really glad you've just elaborated on something that I was going to ask you about, because you said uh, just be before your most recent focus on the importance of democracy, you said that, you know, what what our country needs is um, more college graduates to power the economy and to strengthen democracy. And I know you, you you don't <laughs> you don't want to. um um, drive anyone out from under our big tent to support higher education and our students. So you're not going to use language that is going to contribute to the polarization. So I thought it took a lot of courage for you to even use the phrase strengthen democracy, because there's some that, you know, read that as code, that a person who uses that is uh, not a friend to one of the two political parties right now. So would you talk a little bit more about the importance of the language you'd like to see us using in higher education? And I ask that in part because, you know, I am a privileged white man and there's nothing I can do about that. Right. Short of all my resources to charity, uh, and I do I, I do better than Dick Cheney did in two thousand four percent. I do a lot better <laughs> than that. Uh, uh, anyway, um, so how can, how can you help us talk about these issues in a way that's not going to drive others away from even considering what we're advocating? You know, let's start with what I think is a false premise in what I would call the sort of national media narrative right now, which is that we're equally divided into two camps. I don't think that's true, though. I think the politics look that way in a two party system. People tend to gravitate to one side or the other, and they're willing to sort of, of simply say, look, we're, I, I'm on this side or that side. But the reality of people's views is much more nuanced. And so my view is that um, there are lots of people for whom that rhetoric around this idea that democracy doesn't matter um, are not comfortable, even though they say, I am a Republican and I will continue to be a Republican. So, um, and I'm not saying that this value system is a Democratic or, or a Republican value system. Lumina is a nonpartisan organization, and I take that very seriously. But I will say that if you say you are not for democracy, you are fundamentally pushing against what I think is what this country really is all about. Uh, we are a country of democratic principles and values. And so how do we get there? Well, part of it is that we've got to figure out the language about making sure that people understand what's at risk if you don't have democracy, that you actually have less say as uh, an individual. Um, even if you're a white male, you're going to have less say in a less democratic uh, context. And is that is that what you are hoping for in uh, these anti-democratic contexts? You know, the whims of authoritarian leaders to impose a minority perspective on the majority of people um, can come uh, come, you know, come to bear 
in ways that are very, very challenging. So you look at the public opinion polling right now about uh, the, you know, the very sort of controversial issue around um, abortion. Um, and um, the vast majority of the American public, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent, disagrees with the fundamental pre- premise of what came out of the Dobbs case. And so it's a, it's a concrete example of where the politics are more nuanced. Um, and we've got to find a way in a democratic context to ensure that uh, we help people understand that. So that's part of our responsibility. Part of our responsibility is not, you know, what I would call the sort of old style, let's teach people about government and, and help build their quote unquote civic values. It's let's use the system to help people become better critical thinkers, to become better problem solvers, to help them understand uh, what an ethical frame really means in terms of what you are doing in your life, in your career. Those are the kinds of things that uh, really matter. And, and we know this because, again, we know this from research, that surveys show that people who have higher levels of education are less prone to um, authoritarianism. They're more likely to accept people who, who are uh, different from them um, and to want to contribute to everyone's shared success, not just their own. Conversely, for the people who don't have higher education, the allure of authoritarianism is very high. And so, uh, you know, again, the World Values um, Institute research shows that um, about a quarter of Americans who have a high school credential or less um, agree with the statement that military rule might be a good uh, uh, thing for for our country, whereas uh, 7% of people with a post-high school credential believe that. So, you know, this, these ideas of, uh, you know, we've got to acknowledge and understand and appreciate why people feel this desperation, why they feel the lack of opportunity that they've had and that they've used fear of the other, a uh, fear of difference, fear of change as something to try to hold back uh, people of color, to hold back low-income populations, to hold back immigrants, whatever it may be, to actually help build a stronger educational frame that in turn will help people understand this is not about my success um, uh, being impeded by someone else's. It's about how do we focus on our shared well-being. I think the more help you can, you and the foundation can give us out here in the trenches on the connection between democracy and providing more graduates to participate in the economy and student success that that will be so helpful to us. It's it, it's we, really important. You know, L- Lumina Foundation is not going to become a democracy foundation. It's not going to become a climate change foundation. It's not going to become any of those things. We are a foundation focused on post high school learning, and we are going to continue to be interested in, in increasing attainment. But John, and this is the important but, but the context is changing. And just as we were trying to be responsive in 2008 to the context of the country, then. We need to be responsive to that context now. And that context, as I said earlier, is is different. And it's really important for us to think about the same questions that we've thought about for the last 15 years, right? Which is not only what's the right thing to do, but where can we add value? Because the truth is that we are a large, large foundation, but we do have limited resources and limited capacity to have influence. And and where can we we, we add value? And you know, a, a, um, a really good, I wanted to give you a sort of really good concrete example of something that we're doing right now at Lumina 
in the, in the current environment that relates to the work I mentioned in our, in our current strategic plan around community colleges. So um, everyone on the podcast who listens to the podcast knows that there's been dramatic declines in, in higher education enrollment in the last two years, particularly in community colleges. And so one of the things that we talked about at Lumina was how can we help improve that participation part of our agenda when it comes to community colleges? And one of the things that we came up with is this idea that one of the disadvantages that community colleges have is that they are not nearly as good as either their for-profit competitors or four-year institutions at branding and marketing. And branding and marketing is very important at helping to elevate individual institutions and the sector in in helping them to do a a better job of increasing their their brand and and, um, um, market uh, uh, perspective. And so um, we um, issued an RFP and we um, put together a competition um, called the Million Dollar uh, uh, Community College Challenge. And uh, the idea is that um, we provided technical assistance and support to a bunch of institutions to help them develop proposals to us about what they would do if they got a million dollar grant from Lumina Foundation um, to help them build a new um, a new platform of branding and um, and marketing. And uh, we're going to announce the um, the winners of this um, in um, late summer of, of 2022. Uh, but we have 10 finalists um, who um, who have uh, been part of uh, part of the the journey here. We had several hundred community colleges apply. And the idea here is to give community colleges a better understanding about how to build these brand identity platforms and then to match the marketing with brand identity in a way that is not only going to help that institution, but it's going to help the sector do a better job of helping people explain why going to community college matters, what you get out of it, both economically and, and, and personally, socially. And um, it's, a, it's a sort of really concrete example of ways in which we can take risk as a private foundation, which we should, and use our platform of innovation to help build an entirely new idea, which is that branding and marketing of community colleges mm-hmm. should be a core part of what community colleges do not something that is sort of a tiny little uh, part of, of um, you know, some uh, budget line that probably gets cut uh, in an environment of declining resources. It's really important. I would think the the findings that you're going that obviously are going to come from this will have application far beyond community colleges. Uh, absolutely, um, we've um, we've actually already publicly distributed the. Um, videos, we asked each of the uh, 10 finalists to produce two minute videos. Um, and uh, we've publicly distributed them and they're very impressive. These are schools with very limited means and what they produced on their own is, is extraordinary. And so, by the way, we're going to award um, uh, one institution a million dollars and the other finalists will all get a hundred thousand um, dollars. And so um, all of them are are going to win in this process. And we think that they can that that group of institutions can serve as a um, you know a sort of of um, of a example uh, for a lot of other institutions that we think could be really really important over over the long term. You you just said a minute ago that you thought that foundations ought to take risks. 
you also described yourself uh, as a leader of a foundation as you, your principal obligation is stewardship in this job that you have. I, could you could you make an argument that more broadly, I'm thinking of people who are listening to this podcast who aren't nearly as far along, most of them in their career trajectory as you are or I am, um, should they be calculating risk and the, the need to intentionally take risk and this idea that they become stewards so that they're producing something larger than their own work. As you said about yourself, it's not about me. So I'm trying to think of, Jamie, how do you illustrate certain uh, generic principles of innovation that some of our listeners could make use of right now, even though they do not have the, the fortune of resources that you do to manage? Yeah, I think it's a really important uh, habit of mind, a perspective, I think, that you're getting at, John. And, and um you know, a couple of things come to mind um, in thinking about about uh, you know your really important question. You know, one is that so if you are <clears throat> if you are doing a job, if you are working on a college campus right now, and you are responsible, it doesn't matter whether you're responsible for a small platform of things or a large platform of things. The question is going to be, what is it taking you to be successful right now in that job? And then what do you think it will take to be successful in that job a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? So in other words, every day you should be waking up thinking, how am I performing at the maximum that I need to do to meet the expectations of what this job represent? But how am I ensuring that I am innovating in what I'm doing in order to make sure that the work that I do contributes to a broader innovation agenda? So for example, you know, um, a lot of people I think take uh, professional development as a uh, nice to have instead of a gotta have. Um, I think professional development, uh, being able to sort of avail yourself of new learning opportunities, taking yourself outside of your comfort zone is hugely important. So for me, as the president of Illumina Foundation, before I came to Illumina, I ran an organization that had a $5 million budget. I now run an organization that has a $1.4 billion budget. I did not know how to manage $1.4 billion when I got to, to Lumina Foundation. So what I did was I spent a lot of time learning about the worlds of investment and finance. And so much so now that ironically, I now chair, have chaired investment committees of other organizations. I was the board chair of a, uh, of a museum. And, and before I became the chair, I was the investment committee chair of that museum. So um Jamie Marisotis is an education policy geek. And, you know, that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a policy wonk. Um, and yet I learned about a sphere that was really important uh, to my job, but also to the success of the organization that I'm working with. Uh, it didn't make sense for me as the CEO of the foundation to just say, I don't know, somebody else is managing the endowment. I don't understand it. I'm going to let them deal with it. I need to understand it. I am not an investment professional. I am clear on that, but I understand enough about it because I have responsibility for that to be able to help the professionals do their job better. And so, you know, it's a really good example of seeing yourself as, um, and, and, and I, I hate the phrase I'm about to use, but I'm going to use it anyway, as a lifelong learner, um, you know, seeing yourself as that lifelong learner, I think is, is really important because, you know, in our lives, and I make this point in my in my book about human work, that um, as human workers, we are constantly learning, 
we're constantly earning, and we're constantly serving others. That is what it means to be a human worker. You know, machines don't serve others. Machines don't have the capacity for ethics and empathy and, and compassion. And, and, you know, they have, the, they have the capacity to learn. We now understand that. And they have the capacity to produce value, but they don't have the capacity to, to serve others. And it's that serving others in that virtuous cycle of learning, earning, and serving that I think is really important as part of this innovation agenda. Uh, for you as an individual and for the organization, for the school, for the for the entity that, that you're working for. And so, you I know, think I think an example of a co- very concrete example of the kind of language <clears throat> that everybody can relate to. You know, the people we need to get aboard, get under the tent, as Linda Johnson would say, yeah. that what we're trying to do in higher education is to produce more people who can be simultaneously learning, earning and serving others. Yeah. As I, I'm listening to you, and I, I'm, I'm very conscious of what your occupation is. You just describe yourself also as a policy wonk, um, which is not the way most Americans describe themselves, but we need people who are that. Uh, I think you're also a teacher, and I'm wondering if you um, have or you've done or you could do, I don't know, some periodic um, verbal recorded Jamie Marisota's teaching messages. I I want, if you can just move visually a little bit to your right, I want our, well, they can't see it. That's right. I'm going to have to describe this. On the credenza (laughs) behind Jamie Marisotis is a book that he just referred to, Human Work, right? Right. Have you, you know, have you thought about taking some slices out of that and, uh, you know, putting them, you know, using them in the audio means and, and trying to teach people? You're you're a teacher. You yeah. don't need to be writing a script for you, Jamie. I, I, this is terribly presumptuous. I apologize. It's, it's very funny. Well. Yeah, someone who's such an, an effective, <laughs> someone who's such an effective teacher like you. That's a great compliment to to think that uh, I could I could be a good teacher. I'm I'm an ideas person. Like I, I do I do see yeah. myself as someone who's who is an ideas person. Um, I I'm not sure I'm a. I'm a, I'm a great teacher. I've, I've, I've done it occasionally, but your idea of being systematic is really interesting. I was recently um, in, the, in the UK um, and an interesting, um, uh, another quick story about Lumina Foundation and our innovation platform. So, so um, I'll get to the teaching part of this in a second, John, but um, so Lumina has a large endowment and we invest the endowment the way you would think, right? We've got investment managers and they invest in stocks and bonds and lots of things to produce returns that we can then put into grants that we can use to support the salaries of our staff, et cetera. But Lumina is um, one of a growing number of private foundations that are impact investors. And what that means is that we are actually investing a portion of our endowment and our operating resources in, in profit-making companies that are actually producing social outcomes. In other words, that it's not just about the return and being agnostic about how you make the money. It's actually about saying, what's the mission alignment between the dollars you're investing and what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve? And so we've done that in a variety of ways. We've invested in some funds that do that, but we actually are one of the only private foundations in, in the country that makes direct equity investments in startup companies that are focused on post-high school learning. And I can give you a couple of examples if you're interested. But Oxford wrote a case study about our platform of, of impact investing. And um, and so I was at Oxford recently to, 
teaching to teach the case to yeah. teach the case um uh to, to your point and you know what's interesting is that um i i um i can't i've come to understand in these moments like like i, I did at oxford that in fact the process of teaching and learning is such an iterative process that in the two hours that I had to give this lecture and to interact with these very experienced uh, people, um, I learned as much from them as they did from me. And to me, that is the sort of essence of what effective teaching is all about is that it's not a one-way street, that it is, it's part of that cycle that I talked about, right? That, that I, I learned so much from them, even though they were reading the case and they wanted to hear, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a character in the, in the, in the case study and they, they wanted to meet me, but, but, it, but there's a, uh, a, a more important thing, which is that I walked away from that. This was a global group of people, people from all over the world um, in this, in this course. And it was a great learning moment for me. And so to your point, uh, doing more teaching so that I can do more learning, I think would be really, really valuable. Well, I, I hope you do. I hope some. I hope you'll get some invitations to do it from people who may may want your support. But who knows? Uh, right. You've really uh, you've described yourself as an ideas person, and I'd like our listeners to think about, you know, how could they, if they see themselves as aspiring or practicing innovators, what are they? What are the ideas that are underlying those? And how do you, you know, have a, a generative, regenerative source of those ideas? And you're you're an example of a person. You've you've illustrated that in this conversation. And I want to thank you very much. And um uh your time is precious. I hope you can get even more audiences to do this kind of teaching. I think we need to hear from you in the academy about this kind of view of why this matters in, in both red states and blue states and um, before some of those people that you and I are trying to persuade to uh, help higher education realize its um, potential to produce more people who earn and support democracy in your words. Well, thank you, John. And thank you very much for the, the work that you do and the leadership that you've provided, continue to provide over such a long period of time. It's been a great honor to be uh, in this conversation with you and, Thank you for taking the time for this for this discussion. Especially you for taking the time. We will stay in touch, I know. And think about Jamie Marisotis, the teacher, please. Thank you, I will. Okay, all right. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours with John Gardner. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Gardner Institute. And we wish to thank our guests and the entire team who make this podcast possible.